It's Wednesday, June 14th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. After a federal indictment, Donald Trump spoke to his Bedminster club. CNN told its audience, don't worry, we're here to protect you. We do have now some of the sound, as I told you, we're not, and the audience, we're not carrying his remarks live because, frankly, he says a lot of things uh, that are not true and sometimes potentially dangerous. Jake Tapper there. It is a judgment call. News organizations can define newsworthiness how they want. This speech wasn't inherently newsworthy. We pretty much knew what we were going to get. That informed MSNBC's decision, as explained by Rachel Maddow. There is a cost to us as a news organization to knowingly broadcast untrue things. We are here to bring you the news. It hurts our ability to do that if we live broadcast what we fully expect in advance to be a litany of lies and false accusations. Again, judgment call. I don't see how you could ever take the statements, however, from, say, both a prosecutor and a defense team outside of trial. If your standard is someone might lie or even we expect lies, I mean, he didn't do it. One side's not telling the truth. I would say that if we're going to be honest, totally honest, there might have been a little bit of a brand extension, a little bit of reputation burnishment going along with the deep news judgment of CNN and MSNBC not to play it. Not that it's that big a deal, but there is maybe I'm discerning a sort of signaling, hey, we're the sort of network that doesn't air Donald Trump and you people, you are the sort of news viewers who are discerning and tasteful enough to appreciate not hearing Donald Trump. But again, you don't have to take the guy. I also don't have to play the clips, but I kind of want to. I was kind of interested Are you okay hearing them? Okay, huge warning, trigger warning. We're going to play some Donald Trump clips. They may be inaccurate. It turns out that there's been some documented instances of inaccuracies. All right, here we go. Here's one of the things that these networks were not comfortable letting you hear. Because the same indictment put forward by the Biden administration included staged photographs of boxes at Mar-a-Lago, many people have asked me why I want these boxes. Why did you want them? The answer, in addition to having every right under the Presidential Records Act, is that these boxes were containing all types of personal belongings, many, many things, shirts and shoes. Shirts and shoes, people. It was a box of shirts. It's all stacked in the boxes along with the documents, marked classified, bunch of shirts, beautiful shoes, more beautiful than most people will ever know, dress shoes, shoes that are easy to slip in, but that he didn't slip in at West Point, even though, as has been documented, the ramp was steep. All of that that I just said, I'm going to not subject it to the fact check. Some of it might not check out factually, the shirts and shoes defense. But I think you might have discerned that. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe the shirts and shoes defense would strike you as pretty compelling. If you heard it live without rebuttal, you might be won over. But now... I have rebutted it, so we haven't really run the experiment correctly. Okay, next clip, we're going to do it without any rebuttal from me. I will play a portion of Donald Trump's response and not weigh in with a fact check, even if I strongly think what he's saying is not factual. All right, let's play the clip. And we actually did much better in the second election than we did in the first election. I shall not comment. It is up to you to bring your own powers of discernment to bear if that is a good argument. But please, if you choose incorrectly, do not arrange yourself in a stack formation outside the Capitol as a result of you hearing Trump make that claim. All right, one last clip. 
We're risking it all here, going for broke. I am going to leave you at sea when I play you what could be Trump's closing argument. I did everything right and they indicted me. I'm not saying anything. You, you folks, you're the jury. You decide if that is a winning legal argument, how tight an argument that is. You could do it. I know you can. If the burden is too much, there are plenty of other outlets where they will quite bravely not expose you to the advanced rhetorical sorcery that are the utterances of our former president and current multiple indictee, Donald Trump. On the show today, we start with a Hatch Act violation and end up quoting a Muppet. How we get there, listen to the spiel, find out. But first, The Debutante is a new Audible original podcast about Carol Howe, a former debutante who fell in love with a group of neo-Nazis before turning informant. Oh, young love, I hate when it takes that form. John Ronson is the mastermind behind the series, and he joins us to talk not only about the new series, The Debutante, but also the growth of extremism across the country. He's been inside monitoring the movement for quite a while. John Ronson, up next. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? Carolyn Howe was a pretty former debutante who fell in with the wrong crowd. And by the wrong crowd, we don't mean the greasers or the soches from Rumblefish or whatever clan from West Side Story you may have in mind. We mean the neo-Nazis, the clan, the actual clan. And she had an interesting and disputed life, eventually turning government informant. She embedded herself in the racist enclave of Elohim City, and that is where she came across, allegedly, future Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh. John Ronson traces the life of Carol Howe in his new Audible original series, The Debutante, From High Society to White Supremacy. John, welcome back to The Gist. Mike, it's delightful to see you again. Yes, see you, hear you. I know that you're interested in all manner of things that are interesting, but this just wasn't an interesting story that maybe had a peg to the renewed white supremacy. You had embedded yourself with the very same people that Carol Howe did all those years ago. Yeah, 30 years ago, I guess my beat was white supremacy. 
uh, I wrote a book, Them, which was the subtitled Adventures with Extremists. It was about the relationship between political and religious extremists and conspiracy culture, which now you think, well, of course, but back then it was kind of revelatory to realise that what the clad and militant Islamists all had in common was that they were all conspiracy theorists. They all believed in the shadowy cabal that secretly rules the world. So I went off on an adventure 30 years ago to hook up with these conspiracy theorists and try and sneak into the secret room and confront the Illuminati going about their covert wickedness. And uh, <laughs> and which, which culminated in me sneaking into Bohemian Grove with Alex Jones, which I suppose has become like the most famous of those, of those stories. Uh, uh, but while I was doing all of that, I was spending a lot of time in, you know, white power enclaves. And I kept hearing about this mysterious woman called Carol Howe. Uh, and there was two big mysteries about her, which stayed with me for 30 years. The first is what was this Tulsa debutante, high society girl, like beautiful, charismatic, smart, what? series of terrible life choices did she make to get her to end up as like a spokeswoman for white Aryan resistance who were like worse than the clan so you know it class-wise it was mysterious like most of the people you meet at white power groups are you know working class young men and here was this you know extraordinary you know this woman this charismatic woman like floating through the world so that was the first mystery like who was she how did she end up doing that what's her story and then the second mystery is she told the world that if she had only been listened to, once she became an undercover informant, if she had only been listened to, she could have stopped the Oklahoma City bombing. But she wasn't listened to. So that was the second mystery. Is that true? Was there really a wider conspiracy? Uh, and she was like fingering these people, saying, you know, this guy, this guy. Or, or is it a conspiracy theory? When you were reporting them, were you explaining white supremacy to primarily the UK or for an American audience? Well, I wrote it for the UK because I had no presence in America. But funnily enough, when them got published, it became really popular in America, especially in Hollywood. I got it was a, a kind of glamorous time for me. So, you know, people from The Simpsons were reaching out, and people from South Park. So even though it was for a British audience. Uh, it got published in America just after 9-11, right. which possibly wasn't the best timing for a funny book about <laughs> extremism. Well, it does strike me having uh, engaged with the material then and from memory and how you engage with it now, that back then the tone was, uh, you didn't engage in mockery, you took them seriously, but the stakes didn't seem so high and they seemed this pathetic curiosity as opposed to what white supremacy seems like now. Well, um, I would say, so for instance, I was with militant Islamists, including people who were colleagues of Osama bin Laden, um, shortly before 9-11. So I would say that their sort of more absurd, buffoonish character traits doesn't really, you know, diminish from the fact that they're also capable of of enacting, you know, terrible acts of violence. So, you know, I, I never thought the two things were kind of separate. And, and when you look back on them now, it really feels like, a little bit like years later, my book, Say You've Been Publicly Shamed, felt like being at the beginning of something. Um, and that's that's what I felt like with them. You know, there was a sense of shit's going to go down in, in them. Uh, and, and it did. Yeah. Well, the them of the book is a reference to us and them. And okay, sorry to 
pursue this rivulet. But how does the idea of, I mean, and part of the lesson of the book was that them could easily become us. So that does play out in the Carol Howe story, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Well, one really interesting thing that I found in the Carol Howe story was that the people who believe in that conspiracy theory, I, I know that's a pejorative term, but let's just think of it as Let's a term. stipulate of, that it's also accurate. Right, yeah. yeah. It's um, not people on the right. It's, it's At the time, it was a lot of mainstream journalists, like a very eminent NBC reporter called Mike Betcher, like really believed that this could possibly be true, that Carol Howe was spying on these eccentric white supremacists at this weird compound called Elohim City, and that Elohim City was intimately involved in the Oklahoma City bombing. That's the kind of crux of the conspiracy theory, that McVeigh wasn't a lone wolf. He And the white power movement is much more unified than we think, and uh, Elohim City was involved in the bombing. So at the time, it was like eminent journalists uh, who were, which is, by the way, completely understandable because Mike Betcher was from Oklahoma. The Oklahoma City bombing happened on his doorstep and he just didn't want to let any leads slip by. And we're both journalists. We know how it would kill us to let any leads slip by. That biggest story in 20 years. And it's right there. Yeah. And and there's some evidence that McVeigh had possibly some connection with Elohim City, which would which would undo the idea of the lone wolf. And it's certainly worth pursuing. The authorities certainly pursued it. The courts pursued it. This journalist pursued it. And you pursued it because you had to. Yeah, there was enough clues that really did seem plausible. I remember a few years ago, I went on Joe Rogan and and by memory, he said something like, you know, you're such a skeptic. Are there any conspiracy theories you believe in? And I said, well, you know, maybe this one's true. McVeigh really did get a parking ticket, uh, sorry, a speeding ticket. No, not a speeding ticket, a passing in a no passing part of the road ticket very close to Elohim City. And he really did telephone Elohim City. And then there were these like strange sightings of of people who might have been McVeigh in strip clubs and, and so on. So it's completely understandable that, that people would want to pursue this conspiracy theory. Today, the people who are pursuing this theory are, to a large extent, people on the left. They're academics and historians on the left. And their reason for for thinking that story is true is that they're their ideology is that the white power movement is much more unified than history would have us believe. They're, they're plotting civil war and we have to proactively stop them before they get us. And so for them, the Carol Howe story is really resonant because it's like, look, here's an example. If people had only listened to this woman, but misogyny prevented them from listening to this woman, then the Oklahoma City bombing could have been stopped. So so that's why I think the Carol Howe theory is proliferating so much on, on the left now. Here's the fascinating thing about the belief that they're all, that it's all interconnected and that Timothy McVeigh wasn't a lone wolf. The fascinating thing is he wasn't a lone wolf. Um, and I'm not just speaking of uh Terry Nichols and Fortier, Mike Fortier. Uh, The fascinating thing is that his uh, interconnectedness was ideological, was the books that he brought to all the gun shows, was the ideas he shared. And he didn't have to share contact with people. He didn't have to share, or none of them really had to share, being in each other's space and actually physically plotting out attacks. It was a viral ideology that shows the connection. But 
If you're looking for the actual aha, I've now established uh, to the degree that a court of law would consider this a conspiracy, you're not going to find it because, and you tried to find it, because it wasn't there. It wasn't there in terms of Carol Howe actually having a really seen in any provable way um, Timothy McVeigh lurking within this place that she habituated. So what do you think, how would you explain the fact that there is a conspiracy, it's just not the actual, you know, people touching conspiracy, it's the idea virus conspiracy, but that's not being recognized by say, either the people on the left who think we're on the verge of revolution, or maybe, maybe you know, even people in general who are concerned about this and want to be as educated as they can. Well, yeah, I, I think you put it all very well. Uh, one one thing that, that you know, historians and academics on the left point out is, is just what you said. There was a book called The Turner Diaries, and if The Turner Diaries which was really a blueprint for how to blow up federal buildings. Uh, the Turner Diaries was being passed around and took the place of leaders. You didn't need... And the clan leaders at the time, I mean, I met a bunch of them in the 90s. They were kind of dicks. And, you know, going to the clan back then was kind of kind of pathetic. And, and in fact, one clan that I hung out at, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, run by this guy Tom Robb, who was trying to give the clan an image makeover. He was trying to make the clan more politically correct, uh, like banning the robes and the hoods and the cross burnings and banning all the things presumably that were probably the most fun about being in the clan. Anyway, McVeigh, um, I believe, like passed through if not his clan, but David Duke's clan, which was very connected to Tom Robb's clan, um, but just thought this stuff wasn't for him. Um, and I think the reason why he thought it wasn't for him is because he, he had the Turner Diaries. The Turner Diaries was his leader, and it was being passed around and proliferated. So you're absolutely right that there was that connection there. And the, and the left, I think, are very are, are accurate to point out that connection. Um, but as you say, that people want to go further and want to say this is more than a sort of almost like thematic connection or connection through books. They're actually much more connected than we think. They're plotting. And that, I guess maybe that's an example of ideology trumping evidence gathering, maybe. Uh, and I think, you know, one of, one of the things I think about a lot is what kind of journalists should we be and I think we should be all about curiosity and gathering evidence and not having preconceptions if you go in with an ideological perspective you're going to miss nuance and you're going to succumb to confirmation bias you're going to ignore facts that don't support your theory and so on and that type of journalism I think is getting more and more popular and the kind of journalism that I've done my whole life this like you know, liberal, left-leaning, um, you know, uh, try and understand why people behave the way that they do without having any preconceptions is getting narrower and narrower. So I think ultimately the debutante, the two things I really like about the debutante are, I think, just piecing together the story of Carol Howe is really fun and entertaining and meeting her first husband was, like, great. But also, in in my way, it's it's a way of pointing out that non-ideological journalism isn't something we should let slip through our fingers. Have you been charged with that neo-verb platforming? You know, funnily enough, I, I was talking to my friend John Safran about this, who's an Australian journalist who does very similar things to what I, me and Louis Theroux and, you know, do. 
and he was saying, you know, we're we're spared a lot of that, that criticism and the three of us in particular and I think and he said the reason why is it's it's almost like we've been grandfathered in like uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm very glad about that and also we're sometimes used like to attack other people it's like oh well this person's shit he's not like John Ronson or Louis Theroux or John Safran or Nick Broomfield or whatever well so I, also don't you think well might you think that Maybe it has to do with, okay, uh, he's Australian or your Englishness or your outsiderness. Uh, and it seems perhaps that people don't, in America don't even realize you're engaged in quote unquote journalism. You're maybe engaged in some anthropological experiment <laughs> where, where the platform is, oh, we can't get uh, upset at Margaret Mead for platforming her people in Papua New Guinea or wherever. <laughs> maybe. The, I think the, the one exception where I have had some criticism was Alex Jones, because I, I did the first big story about Alex Jones. Um, I used to joke... But I've, I've stopped making this joke now, but I used to joke that I was like Alex Jones' Simon Cowell, uh, that I sort of, you know, discovered him. And and the two of us, you know, sneaking into Bohemian Grove with Alex Jones was a very big story, both for him and for me. It kind of put both of us kind of on the map. Um, so I have been criticised for that. Um, at first, well... I, I always balked slightly at the criticism because Alex Jones wasn't as bad then as he is now. So uh, he was much more, you know, he was an anti-government person who was interested in Waco and Ruby Ridge. And and those are things that are totally valid to be, you know, suspicious of, to question whether, you know, did the government overreach in those places? So that's the first thing. But then also... I did for for a while think, you know what, I've had so many people saying to me I, I was too nice to Alex Jones or, or too uncritical. So I did then redress the balance by doing a thing for This American Life about his teenage years, which was a much more kind of critical look at, at, at Alex. So I kind of think I karmically redressed things. The question about how you have come to understand extremists, um, as I look at the discussion about how America is on the brink of a civil war, and there are whole networks that very much talk about facts, true events where extremists do terrible things, and there is a narrative that is the, we're on the brink of a civil war, we're at each other's throats narrative. I, on my show, have pretty much rejected that. I liken it to maybe it's a little like after 9-11, we weren't aware of the terrorism cells then. We were now law enforcement, I'm not being blasé, but law enforcement was aware and did what they had to do to uh, protect us. And they generally did. I don't see why that wouldn't happen this time around. But what do you think is going on to honestly and earnestly convince people that right-wing extremism or white supremacy is so pernicious as to literally threaten our existence. Well, um, I, I've, I've noticed that some people in, in kind of our world uh, sort of underplay January the 6th, which I don't think is, is appropriate. Like, I think January the 6th was a, was a really scary, serious thing to happen. So I think you can definitely go too far the other way. Um, but I, yeah, but I do think that... Well, you know, a couple, I can't say a couple of the guys um, who 
were uh, accused but not convicted of plotting to kidnap Governor Whitmer of Michigan weren't white supremacists. Like, there's lots of reasons to not like them if you don't want to like people like that. But they just weren't white supremacists. One of them would would go to Black Lives Matter, you know, protests as a Black Lives Matter supporter. So there is something a little odd of saying they're all, you know, they're all white supremacists. That does feel just not factually true. But the reason why perhaps people do say that is because there is this theory that civil wars always start on, on ethnic grounds. And so if civil war is imminent in America, then it has to be ethnic. And so it means that the, the white power people, the you know anti-government people, have to be white supremacists. It's almost like a kind of post hoc rationalisation, I sometimes think. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I also think that the word that explains it to me is identity. And as much as the white supremacists have this warped identity, and your Muslim extremists did too. It doesn't take the form of violence, but there is an identity among many of the people who are most worried and convinced that right-wing extremism is, like I said, an existential threat to America. Yeah, it's... The other thing that sort of alarms me, and I say, like, I don't want to, you know, it's it's very easy to go too far into the other direction. Um and, you know, books like the Turner Diaries and the way that they're proliferating and, and so on and the three percenters and all of that stuff. You know, there is some serious shit going yeah. on. I don't want to say, oh, we don't need to worry about anything because right. that's not true. Right. There are things to worry about. But I do think that more of a connection. You know, there's hundreds of militias in, in Michigan and most of them, as far as I understand it, are just have been deemed just like, you know, gun clubs for disaffected young men. And I think it's very doubtful that... You know, they're all united and are plotting to overthrow the country. Just doesn't seem that doesn't seem plausible to me. Might they look at the extremism as plotted in Elohim City and say, "Oh, that's not for me"? And then the add-on to that question is, "Okay, if they do that, maybe we would take some false comfort from it." Just as Timothy McVeigh looked at the Klan and said, "Oh, that's not for me." Yes, and you know, as I say, you can go. You know, nuance is is hard to keep up when you're talking about that that world. So the fact about Elohim City, for instance, is that really serious murdering white supremacists did hide out in Elohim City. There was one guy called Richard Wayne Snell, who's now buried at Elohim City, who murdered a pawn shop owner thinking that, that he was Jewish and murdered a black state trooper. And the Elohim City people were like, uh, you know, you're welcome here. Yeah. Members of the Order. Who and then, by the way, the Elohim... leader of Elohim City proudly showed you his grave. Yeah, absolutely. Calling him a patriot. Yeah. So, you know, Dark, serious shit happened at Elohim City, no doubt. And Carol Howe really was in the middle of it, uh, reporting for the ATF on those things. And there was a lot of we're going to blow up federal building kind of talk at Elohim City. Um, but people want, you know, just like when I stuck into Alex to Bohemian Grove with Alex Jones and he wasn't satisfied with the crazy stuff that we saw and he wanted to turn it into actual human sacrifice. People want that to be true about Elohim City as well, that not only is this provable dark shit um, happening at Elohim City, but also Timothy McVeigh was definitely there, Carol Howell should have been listened to. You know, people just want to take things too far. People want, to, people want absolutes. 
The name of the new podcast and Audible original is The Debutante. It was reported and hosted by the estimable John Ronson. It's always great to have you on. Thanks for doing it, John. Mark, it was a pleasure. Thank you. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. In the late 70s, a brotherhood of criminals lived by one unbreakable rule. Yeah, don't snitch. Those who did ended up in the ground. He had dirt under his fingernails like he had tried to dig his way out. And when their own kids turned on them... They would do anything and they didn't care who they had to kill. The Killing Month, August 1978, is the new podcast from WRAL. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. I think I have found the most toothless bureaucrat in Washington. Not her fault. But she is Park Ranger Smith trying to tamp down the picnic-thieving antics of Yogi Bear. She is King Canute trying to stop the tides. She is Kevin Bacon's Chip Diller in Animal House trying to stop a wave of humanity from flattening him to no avail. Anna Galindo Marone. No doubt a hard-working Civil servant is her name. She is an official who takes her job seriously. She is a part of the Office of Special Counsel, and she has been, since 2000, the chief of the Hatch Act unit. The Hatch Act is the regulation barring government employees from engaging in political activity, which seems like a good rule to have on the books. But it turns out that rules with no enforcement mechanism rarely get followed. Anna Galindo Marone does, however, investigate each allegation, and she then issues a ruling. During the Trump administration, she ruled that 13 different White House employees violated the Hatch Act during the 2020 election. She ruled that several more violated the Hatch Act along the way. Kellyanne Conway was so frequently cited for Hatch Act violations, she got pretty brazen, quote, let me know when the jail sentence starts. And she's right. There's no enforcement mechanism for Hatch Act violations. Every big report, often described as scathing, has reams of obligatory paragraphs detailing what can be done to make these violations that we've investigated and confirmed to make any of that matter. Here's one simple one that they actually got to. Fill the Merit Systems Protection Board with all three members, not the zero members or one member that it had for all four years of the Trump administration and a year of the Biden administration, thus denying a quorum. The Merit System Protection Board, therefore, couldn't do anything or make any real rulings. I say that's a good idea. I'm glad we have a Merit Systems Protection Board with, well, it doesn't have all three members, but it has two members. And now the Biden administration finds itself in the crosshairs, the weak, barely discernible crosshairs. Karine Jean-Pierre, White House spokesperson in 2022, said this, Unfortunately, we have seen mega, MAGA Republican officials who don't believe in the rule of law. 
They refuse to accept the results of free and fair elections. And that was it. She called them mega mega Republicans. Interestingly, during the Trump administration, the OSC, Office of Special Counsel, ruled that Trump officials bringing Make America Great Again hats to work would be a violation of the Hatch Act. Not the Hat Act, the Hatch Act. And when that actually happened with a HUD official, she got dinged for a Hatch Act violation. And to reiterate something I've said over and over again, no one cared. It didn't matter. But it's kind of interesting. The presence of a slogan as an endorsement of making America great again, Hatch Act violation. The reference to the acronym as a critique of that slogan, Hatch Act violation, would be something to ponder if it mattered any bit. To their credit, the Biden officials dinged for Hatch Act violations, did not brush it away with the critique, oh, who cares? But Jean-Pierre did say the White House counsel may challenge the Hatch Act violation. It was actually technically a warning she got, but she said, we're looking into that. We're hoping to appeal this ruling, perhaps, which you might think might myth on a Galindo Marone. But if I were her, I'd take it as a big compliment. They care enough to do something other than laugh it off. That is progress, like Yogi actually trying to maneuver behind the scenes to get Ranger Smith fired. Another interesting, okay, maybe interesting to Ana Galindo Marone and other hatchheads, another interesting thing is that the original complaint wasn't just about MAGA Republicans. That was the violation, just saying MAGA. It was literally about using the phrase mega MAGA violations, but the office dinged the MAGA part alone. Apparently, you can't say mega MAGA or even MAGA, but certainly not mega MAGA from the White House podium. Which brings me, once again, I'm in fine verse form. It brings me to a poem. Corinne Jean-Pierre, as if on a dare, uttered the phrase mega MAGA. To all but a few whose priorities are askew, it barely registered as chitter chatter. She attempted to pivot to something new, but even that was objected to. Now we must suffer some segue saga. I dove deep into the text, but never cried from my breast. I believe I've just read errata. Can we move on as a nation to Facebook regulation? Please don't ignore the meta matter. I've scoured the ruling. The text left me flummoxed and drooling. So I exit as if chased by a bear to wit. Waka waka. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer of this program. Michelle Pesca is the CLO of Peachfish Productions. Her affections run more towards the Kermit than to the Fozzie. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oom Peru, G Peru, Du Peru, and thanks for listening. Oh!